Amen. If you would, grab your copy of Scripture, open to Psalm, the book of Psalm 78. You can find that on page 672 in the Pew Bible in front of you, as we will take a detour from our study through the Gospel of Luke for Mother's Day and look to the book of Psalms. Psalm 78, page 672, will be our text. Don't panic, we won't get through the whole psalm. It's one of the longest psalms in all the Psalter. I know some of you who know me might go into a minute of panic, but that'll be okay. I do know better than to keep us here all day on Mother's Day. Maybe. Amen. Amen. Now, as I prepared for this week, uh, one of the things that really pressed on my heart and on my mind is the reality that comes with Mother's Day, that Mother's Day is a day that it really brings forth a lot of emotion. There's a lot of, there's a lot of various things going on around this room on a day like today. That there are moms who have young children and who are filled with hope and, and desire and have uh, just uh, eyes wide open as they look to all the things that they uh, would love to do as they raise their children. There are uh, young ladies in this congregation who are about to be moms. There are people here this morning who would like to be moms, who haven't yet been able to be moms. There are people who have lost their moms in recent years. There are people who have grown children, and maybe Mother's Day is a bit hard uh, for you uh, for various reasons. There's so many things that go on with a day like today. And what I'd like us to do before we look to Psalm 78, I'd like us to think about... Uh, what is going on around this nation today as Mother's Day is celebrated? In other words, most people, the same emotions that are going on here are going on all over the place in every uh, form and facet, every state, every city, every, every county. And most people will go through the day something like this. They will take all of the emotion of the day and, and they'll just lay a cloak of denial over that emotion. In other words, moms who are, are struggling or, or today is a difficult day, maybe their wayward children will come and bring them a card or have lunch with them uh, and they'll uh, spend time with them and tell them how grateful they are for them and then they will leave and go right back to the same thing that was going on before it was Mother's Day. In other words, what would today really change? And see, what would the Lord do in the midst of all the emotion in the room? What, how would the Lord uh, have us to deal with a day like today? What is the best way we could honor mothers? Well, it's with truth. In other words, God doesn't just leave us to, to sort of drift along through life and to have no bearing or no rudder. God gives us truth. He gives us a design. He gives us His plan that we're to implement into our lives. And so that's exactly what we're going to look at in Psalm 78. We're going to say, God, will you help us? Whatever situation we're in this morning, all of us, every person, every man, woman, and child this morning can find encouragement and instruction from this psalm as God will declare just His overarching plan for our lives and how we are to respond to Him. So let's begin Psalm 78, verse 1. The psalmist says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling to the generation to come to the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, and they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We receive it this morning as a gift, a wonderful good gift from You to us. 
Lord, thank you for its perfection. Thank you for its instruction. And Lord God, I pray that you'll use it now to minister to every life in this room, Lord, that we might see today the hope that we have in your truth for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. First, this morning, I want us to see the decree, the decree that Asaph, the psalmist, gives us in the first four verses. Notice this declaration. He says, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, that His strength and His wonderful works and that, of his, that He has done. Now I want you to see that the psalmist is first of all going to declare to us that what we need to recognize, what we need to realize is that wherever we find ourselves, whatever our circumstance might be today, that God has a plan, that He's a generational God, that He has laid out certain things for us as His people, that it's a love gift from Him to us to help us, to instruct us as we move forward in this life. I want you to see... For example, in verse 2, the Bible says, I will utter my, my mouth in a parable. In other words, he will, he will tell a story. He will come alongside His law and give us instruction through the story, not just simply the recitation of information. This is where we tend to overcomplicate and get ourselves into trouble in life. I know as a parent, trust me, that not only is it the most difficult thing you could possibly uh, endeavor to do is to be a parent, but that for all of us, as we look back across, if we've been a parent for a week, a month, a year, or for many, many decades, there is regret. None of us look back and say, boy, we did everything perfect. Everything worked out. It just, it's hard. It's hard. And God says that, listen, don't just recite information that as we go through this, we'll see that just sheer information, apart from experience, apart from heartfelt application, apart from real understanding and knowledge, is not going to yield that which you and I would hope that it would yield. And that we cannot drop the ball as a generation today that's been handed to us. Notice the psalmist says that, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. In other words, so it's for many of you in this room, the gospel has been handed off from one generation to you and now you receive that and now it's your job, it's our job as this generation to hand it to the generation to come. This is why we work so diligently in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, why we put so much of our time and energy and resources into children because we understand the great uh, command of God to impart that which God has imparted unto us unto them. But again, even in that, it's not that simple because I, for one, was not imparted anything. I come from an unbelieving family. And so I stand today as the lone believer in my immediate family. My mother today is lost on Mother's Day. Pray that God would save her soul and that she would be redeemed and welcomed in as her daughter. But as of now, she is not. My sister, my brothers, all in rebellion against God. And so it's difficult, it's emotional, it's hard. But we must take that which I have received. And so a generation gave to me that which was not handed down biologically to me, but this fellowship here. You are the family that handed me the gospel. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. And so what I want you to see here is that this isn't limited to just a, a familial call. This is a call that whoever possesses the gospel is to give their time, energy, and resources and emotion to handing it to the next generation. Notice, it's all about Him in verse 4. We will not hide from them, we will not hide them, these things that God has done from our children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. 
That the goal is that for all of us, our children would grow up in such a home that as they departed from that home, as they went on to live their lives, that they look back on their time under our instruction and under our leading and guidance, and they would say that the home was about God. The principles were about the Lord. The the illustrations that I saw in my life of faith were about Him. They were all pointers to God Almighty, that that is the goal. But how do we get there? You see, the Bible doesn't just come out and give a decree and then leave us stranded, but follows up with the details. The what, the why, the who. Notice beginning in verse 5 at the details. For He, the Lord, has established a testimony in Jacob. He has appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should make known to their children. Now, I want to stop here. I want you to think for a moment. What exactly has God given? What, what is the, the gift that God's given that we're to use as our resources? It is a testimony. It is not merely words, but it's a testimony of, of, of information, of words that have functioned in the lives of people in such a way that have created a testimony. What testimony? What is the Bible talking about? Well, they received the testimony according to Exodus 31. The, the Bible says that Moses, as he's on Mount Sinai, the Bible says when he had made, uh, when he had come to the end of his speaking with him on Mount Sinai, that God gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, same word, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. In other words, what we need to recognize this morning is that God speaks. In other words, he He speaks. He chooses to communicate to us. He doesn't remain silent. He gives us His Word. And we, so often, it's hard. It's hard to to be in church every Sunday and not just take things for granted. It's it's hard to to live in in a home that declares and waves the Christian banner and not just take things for granted. That we serve a great God who's spoken. He has given us His Word. His testimony has been declared to us. In Exodus 20, where God gives us the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, I want you to note that as they begin, the the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In other words, we don't start with a command thou shalt not. We start with the declaration of what I have done. The Lord says, I have led you out of bondage. That before we get to the way in which you ought to live for your benefit, for your prosperity, for your joy, for your peace, before we get to that, let me declare my testimony to you that I am the God who led you out of bondage. And so this morning, if you, if your tendency is to sort of set back a little bit from this day, from this message, from what I'm saying, and sort of resist it in the sense that, well, Pastor, you don't know what I'm struggling with. You don't know the heartbreak that I face. You don't know the circumstance that I'm in right now, this morning. I would say to you, I probably do not. But here's what I do know. I do know that there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of living testimonies that are looking at me right now that will bear witness and testimony of what God has done in leading us out of bondage. That we have a God who has declared that He is the Lord and begun by leading us out of bondage. That I am today alive, but I was once dead. And my testimony is is that over overcoming all of the obstacles, overcoming all the obstacles of my heritage and my family and my background and my upbringing and all those things are not me. But a God who's gracious and good, who overwhelmed my circumstances, who worked in the midst of and who brought people into my life to declare this good testimony to me. And God led me to freedom through it. There is no obstacle too great for the gospel. There's no heart too hard. There's no family too far. There's no pain too great. Which is why I... I take so personally scriptures like Psalm 78 because I see how God has used this very word to transform my own life. And I pray that you will declare the goodness of God in His testimony, in His speaking to us. That's what He's given us. 
But why? Why did he give us this testimony? Why has he given us this word? Verse 6. That the generation to come might know them, would know this testimony. That children who would be born, that they might arise and declare them to their children. That he's a generational God. That he gave it to them, he gave it to us, that we might impart it to those who are yet to come. That God works in amazing ways, but he doesn't work equally in all times and in all places. In other words, God, there are seasons in time where God manifests his presence and his power on earth in such a way and he comes and he gives his word and he gives it to his people and then when that season ends it's now our job to take that word and to pass it to the succeeding generations as they come along behind us and so god has given us this he has given us the power he's given us his spirit he's given us the authority to do so but we we struggle so many times Because we say, well, God, you've given us all this and and we believe it and we we get up and we we take our kids to church and we we do these things. And and sometimes, Lord, I I don't know. How do you know if you're if you're if you're giving this to your children in such a way that they're receiving it and it's changing them and that they will then give it to your grandchildren? How do we know? Well, verse 7 tells us the who. In other words, the who that they might become. Verse 7 says that they might set their hope in God. That our children might, through this passing on of the gospel, might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep the commandments of God. And that is a huge statement that our children, the goal is that our children would not hope in themselves, would not hope in the government, would not hope in the economy, would not hope in anything other than God Almighty. That the knowledge that they have of God would lead to a hope in God, which would then lead to obedience to God. But you see, we don't just, what we do is skip over and what we want is obedient children who act right and who speak right and who do the right things. But what is the testimony of so many of us in this room? That obedience doesn't work in and of itself. There are many, many people here today who acted very, very right when they were growing up. And as soon as they got out of the house, they acted very, very wrong. And now you're back. And you don't want that for your children. And I don't want that for my children. I want my children to set their hope in God. I want their hope to be in God. I don't want to declare in my home that it is, it is Washington DC that is going to take care of them in the future. I don't want them to think that it's a paycheck coming in my bank account that is going to provide food on the table. I don't want them to think that it is their diligent study in school even that is going to carry them to a career that is going to make them prosperous and successful. I want my children to hope in the Lord. I want them to study in the Lord. I want them to dream in the Lord. I want everything about their lives to be grounded in a hope that if God doesn't do it, it's not worth having and it probably won't happen. You see, that's what hope in the Lord does. It transforms everything. It takes mere words and precepts and turns them into functionality. It makes us live out our lives in a completely different way. You see, I would add... As I read this, here's what my heart says. My heart, as I I dream over verse 7, I pray, God, please let my children hope in the Lord and not forget your works. And I think, and God, keep your commandments when no one else is around. Not, Not just when they're with me, because fear accomplishes that. That's what they tell me. (laughs) But when I'm not there, when they're alone, when they're by themselves, that they would keep your commandments because their hope is in you. So we have a, a, a decree, we have details, but then we have a danger. A danger. And the Lord will give us warning to help us heed His instruction this morning. You see, if our children don't hope in God, If their confidence is found in other things, then they're going to lack the courage that they need 
in order to rise up against a world that is hostile to their beliefs. In other words, we know instinctively that it's going to take great courage for our children to grow up and have their hope in the Lord. But what will that, what does that really look like? What do we, do we just wait until trouble comes? Well, trouble comes every day. If you don't believe that, you just go out onto your children's public school campus. You talk to the many multitudes of teachers that are in this room right now. They'll tell you it's hard and they need to be courageous. They need to have a great courage. Look at verse 8. So the danger is that they may not be like their fathers. And that is not a a term that's a generic term, meaning, meaning our heritage. So that's not just dads, that's dads, moms, and everyone else who is our, the fathers of our faith. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now the psalmist is going to turn back and say, now here's what has happened in the past. Here's where we've been before God has had to intervene and straighten out the situation. And why? What went wrong? What, what detoured? It seems so simple. God takes a group of people who were utterly hopeless. He leads them out of captivity. He rains His power down on them in every possible way. When they're hungry, they have food. When they're thirsty, they have water. There's lightning and clouds and fire and thunder. And God, there's no, no one, their, their clothes aren't wearing out. No one is, is saying, is this really happening? Pinch me. They know, and they know who's doing it. They are utterly convinced. God gives them some simple Ways in which to live their lives. And they just fall apart. How does that happen? And then I look in the mirror and I say, how does this happen? How do we do this? I believe that what the psalmist is teaching us is that there's a failure to explain. There's a failure to explain. That the information, if you study the history of this psalm, if you read all 72 verses of this psalm, the psalmist takes you through a historical background of God's people. And what you see is that the information is there. But the explanation is not. It's just merely things we ought to do. Maybe this is right. Maybe this is wrong. But let me tell you something. We don't do well with something being right and something being wrong, if we don't understand who's behind and what the reason is. Case in point, the speed limit sign. Hello? Now, if we were driving down the interstate at 64 and a half miles an hour, or... 70 or 69 and a half miles an hour, depending on what the speed is. If we're driving down the highway and we're driving at the proper speed and we suddenly achieved momentum that propelled us over the posted speed, maybe just by a mile or two. And at that moment, right over to the side, right there in the shoulder, you'd see a holograph of Jesus Christ standing there with a sign saying, no, no, no. It would eliminate our speeding problems. We'd we'd stop speeding. But you see, we just sort of get swept up in the culture. We're we're swept up in the in the in the flow of everything that's going on around us. And so really, it's just sort of that's a suggested speed. And as long as no one has these lights on the top of their car, hey, everything's good. We'll be fine, right? And the the thing is, is that we're all. We're, it's, uh, what I love to do is I, I, when I pass a police officer who is, uh, you know, whether they're checking speed or not checking speed, it doesn't really matter. You know, I always wave at the person who's flashing their lights at me. Thank you, thank you. We're all on this team together. We're all, we're cooperating in our rebellion. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know you, but I love you. Thank you for that. <laughs> then as you pass the police officer, like, I am obeying the speed limit. Of course I wouldn't speed. I'm a pastor. Hello. Come on. 
Then I get to look in my uh, rear view mirror at all of the traffic going the other direction and it's solid brake lights. <laughs> solid. Every person's just slamming up, bang, 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 come, because they get a glimpse of the front of that car or something's awry, right? You see, we don't do good with just, well, you shouldn't do this or you should do that. And there's a failure here to explain. Look at verse 9. The children of Ephraim, here's the danger, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in the law. Now, this reference to Ephraim, we believe this is uh, an, an example of when they were to go into their conquest of Canaan and uh, they turned back. It's recorded in Judges chapter 1. Ephraim is, is prepared for battle. God has armed his people. They've been victorious. The Lord goes before them. And as they walk through Canaan and just defeat people after people, God is faithful. But Ephraim turned back. They retreated. And then their brethren had to go forth in victory as they retreated. So the psalmist calls back the fact that there they were, God's people, with all the promises, with all the information, with all the bows and arrows, all the weaponry they needed, but they refused to go into battle. Like people today. Here we are sitting here this morning and we possess all that we need. Everything that we need to be successful in the Lord, we possess that. We, no one would declare on the day of judgment, there's no one going to stand before the Lord and say, God, if I'd have just had a little more information, I could have done a better job. Lord, if you would have just clarified or explained, that will not come up. You see, because we know, we, we have everything we need. We have all the weaponry we need to, to wage war against the battle that's against us. We can be courageous, but our hope is not set in the Lord. And so we retreat in the face of opposition. And we just back up from conflict because we feel that we just don't know enough. We haven't studied enough. We haven't worked enough. We don't. And we call other people and we do other things. But God has given us all that we need. You see, we're prepared for battle. But why are we yet so unsuccessful oftentimes? What is the problem? Well, I want to call your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 4, where I believe we'll find insight in answering this question. In verse 7, these scriptures will come up. Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 7. The Lord asks this question, For what great nation is there that God is so near to as the Lord our God is to us? Or whatever reason we may call upon Him. Now, isn't that us today? In other words, don't we, can't we ask today, well, God, well, no one. We have all that we need. Lord, you, we can call upon you for anything we're in need of. Yet we, we seem so needy. Verse 8, and what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all the law which I have set before you this day? Well, well, Lord, None. We have freedom to, to, to read our Bibles, to declare the gospel, to assemble and worship you. We, we have no, no restrictions. We're, here we are, God. Yes, we have plenty to complain about, but God, we have all we need. Verse 9, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. You see what happens here? It's not, it's not the resources. It's not the information. The problem here is the explanation. The problem here is the experience. Lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. In other words, what we need to do as parents, what we need to do as a church is we need to invite our children. We need to invite the next generation to see with their own eyes the, the wonders that God is doing today in our lives. That they, are, they should see that with their own eyes and they will then in turn take the principles and will apply them in their hope will be in the Lord. So I did a little experiment. I was driving back from Louisiana last night with my wife and we were having a, a, a nice talk together. And I said, honey, you grew up in a home that was 
utterly and completely as opposite from mine as there could ever be. And I love to sit and listen to you and your family tell stories about the things that God did in your life growing up. And I said, when you, when you look back on your childhood, how do, you, how do you know that God is real? I mean, how do you absolutely know that no matter what happens, God is real? I mean, we're way past right or wrong. You spend any time around my wife, you'll understand. She has a deep, abiding love for God that inspires my heart. How does that happen, I said. She said to me, well, we just saw it so many times growing up. I said, give me an example. She said, well, there's the time that uh, when I was young, my mom and dad took the whole family to Europe for a vacation. And uh, he's a pastor, and they were, you know, on a very, very fixed income, but they saved up their money and took some military flights and got to Europe and were there visiting and going around to various uh, countries and just sort of, you know, winging it, doing the best they could. And there was a uh, one evening that they were looking for a place to stay, and they were in France. And no one in her family speaks French uh, or even has any inkling as how to speak French. And so... They're there and they, they were, couldn't find a place to stay and it was getting dark. And so they saw a place that might be a hotel, but they're not really sure. But there wasn't really any people around. It was kind of an ominous situation. And so uh, her dad pulled the car over and he said, you, you guys wait here. I'm going to go up here and check this out. And so he gets up out of the car, goes up there. It turned out to be, I think, an abandoned place, a closed down place. But when he comes back, Joanne and the kids were out of the car. And they realized that they had locked the keys in the car. Now, this is way before cell phones. This is way before satellite communication. Here they are in a foreign land where they don't speak the language in a strange place. And the car is locked and they don't have any way to get in. And so, what would you do? What would I do? And so here's these children standing there looking at their parents and there is real, real stress, real danger, real struggle in this moment. And so my father-in-law says, we need to pray that God will help us. We need to get into this car. And so they began to pray. Not five minutes passes. A car pulls up. A man gets out, walks around, shows them the key, puts a key in the door, unlocks the car, goes back around, gets in his car, and drives away. Just like that. No one says a word. It wasn't the same car as this car. Nobody said anything. No one uttered a word. Now I want to know, what happened? In other words... Are you this morning, in your mind, is your first response to that to say, now wait a minute, now hold on a second. Are you thinking, well now, there's my wife and her mom right over here, if you'd like to go uh, talk to them, both fully sane and competent, the whole entire family saw the same thing? I'm just asking you. Or does your heart just go, God did that. I said to my wife, she's telling me that. I'd heard that story before. And I said, well, honey, what, well, what, was the, what was the ride like after that? She said, we praise God. God opened the door. He sent an angel. He did a miracle. He unlocked the door. That's the God we serve. Now listen to me. When you're a 10-year-old little girl and you see that happen, you know God's real. So the question is, why are our children... Reluctant to be obedient unto the Lord. Why do they not desire and why is their heart and their hope not founded in the Lord? It's because they don't experience God. See, as all they hear are precepts that are empty. We need to invite our children into the experience of what God is doing in our lives and in our families' lives. That they might see that. Now listen. Do you, do you think that next week when we 
have another great celebration and a baptism service? Do you think that all of the lives that are going to cross across the baptismal waters next week, do you think that all the, the, the work and energy for the, the testimonies that you'll hear is simply for your entertainment? Do you think that we do that just so you would say, Oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that nice? No! So that you might see and experience and be a part of the miraculous saving power of God. To know that when you are sitting amongst people that are walking, living, breathing miracles, that we would have no excuse to say, well, God's not doing anything miraculous in my life. Yes, He is. Yes, He is. And He may do that this morning in someone's life this morning. That's the reason that we want to declare the goodness of God. We want, to, we want to invite the next generation to see what God is doing. You see, we don't want to forget His works. We don't want to forget. We don't want to walk into the promised land and forget how we got there. And our children turn their backs on the Lord. They forgot. See, the goal is to help our children to not just hear about God. But that when they hear about God, they're relating what they hear through the lens of what they've seen, what they've experienced. And so when you as a mom and a dad, when you don't just pray, God, thank you for this day. Don't just say, God, thanks for this food. But when you pray with your children or when you pray around your children or when you're hoping in the Lord, invite your children in. We're praying that God would save our neighbor or your school teacher or your friend or whoever it is. And together you pray and seek the face of God so that when God delivers, when God comes through, when God does what only God can do, together they're involved and they'll remember for the rest of their life, I saw God do that. I saw Him open that car right there. Only God can do that. But if we forget, see, if, if we're just astonished by iPads, if we're just wowed by 3D movies, who cares? I want to see a God who can do a miracle, who can send an angel, who can help me in my moment of distress. That is unbelievable. That is amazing. That is worship-filled moments in life that no technology can offer. See, to disciple the next generation, it takes... It takes us, as this generation, inviting our children to come in, to participate, to be part of all that God is doing. How, how is He moving in your life? Is He moving in your life this morning? Is God, is He there? Is He vibrant in your heart? Does He captivate your affection? Let me help you this morning with a, a New Testament illustration that will help all of this come together, I hope and pray for you this morning. Because I understand that there's great opportunity for condemnation this morning. So I want the Lord's truth to penetrate through that and to inspire all of us, all of us to step up and to recognize that God is a gracious God and He's given us what we need. And all we have to do is go forth, is go forth. I want to introduce some of you for the first time, reacquaint the rest of you with this uh, amazing man of God in the New Testament by the name of Timothy. Timothy was the son in the Lord that Paul just loved with all of his heart. Here's what Paul says of Timothy in Philippians 2. He says to the church at Philippi, he says, For I have no one like him. There's no one in my life like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all the others will, will ask about their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. For you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Oh, how great would it be for us to be able to speak those words over our children. For us to be able to say of our sons and daughters that, that how genuinely concerned they are for our welfare and how they don't put their own interests first, but the interests of the gospel first. You see, because the, the, the danger is that our children would not be courageous in the face of battle. 
But here's Timothy. Here's Paul declaring that this Timothy is one who doesn't put himself first. He puts the gospel first. He goes forth for the gospel first. Now, who is this Timothy? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1 about Timothy and his faith. He says, For when I called remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is now also in you. So now we find out that this Timothy, this great man of faith, received his instruction from his mother, Eunice, and her mother, Lois. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to Timothy that you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing that whom you have, from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood... You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to take note of what what Paul says. He says that you have learned and been assured of. It wasn't just information, but they've been assured in something. That Lois gave to Eunice something that she could then turn and give to her son Timothy, that it wasn't just here's what you need to do, here's right and here's wrong, but that you can be assured of, that this is the this is the command of a good and loving God who is righteous and holy, who reigns over the universe, that in your moment of doubt, in your moment of attack and trepidation, don't call a locksmith, don't start looking for strangers, but fall on your knees and pray that God would intervene and help you and do what only he could do. This is the kind of faith this young man has. There's no mention here of his father. Moms, there's no mention. What do we know about his father? Well, we have to turn to Acts chapter 16 to learn about his father. The Bible says, Then he, this is Paul, traveling with Silas, came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, there's a certain disciple there named Timothy. This is where Paul comes in contact with Timothy. The son of a certain Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because he was, was one of the Jews where there were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, here's... Paul coming in contact with young Timothy. And here's what we find out. We find out that Eunice was married to an unbeliever. That Timothy grew up without a godly father. That he was in a broken home. We also find out that there's something that went on generationally here. If you just think through this with me for a second. We don't know much about Lois. But we know Lois loved the Lord. We know Lois implanted a faith into Eunice. But we also know that Eunice... Eunice didn't always fly straight all the time, did she? That everything didn't go according to plan, did it? Because she found herself married to an unbeliever. Now she's unequally yoked in a strange situation. But yet, God redeemed the situation, worked in her heart. She became strong in the Lord. She came home. The prodigal came home. And then she raises up this young son, Timothy. Now, I want you to see that in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, where the Bible says, but his father was Greek. This imperfect tense right here. Many scholars believe that this is telling us that he was in that he is now deceased, that he's no longer alive, which, again, is some critical information. Because that also tells me that Eunice is a widow. Now, I don't know if Timothy is an only child, but here's what I know. I know that Lois had great faith. She gave it to her daughter, Eunice. Eunice strayed from the Lord, but then came home again, raised this amazing son, but is a widow, is alone. And I know that Timothy here is somewhere between 16 and 24 years old. And so he's a young man, and I know that in this culture, a young man would have been the one to provide for his mom, would have been her only real hope. And yet, Timothy puts the gospel ahead of himself, but he has a mom who puts the gospel ahead of herself, and a grandmother who puts the gospel ahead of herself, who sends their son, the only one maybe that they have, this great son that God's given them, and says, you go with Paul for the gospel, we'll be okay. In other words, 
We don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to pray. God's going to take care of us. He's a great God. Our hope is in the Lord. It's not in you and your job. It's not in the corner market. We don't have to go to the drive-thru to eat. We're going to trust God. You see? But what about Lois and Eunice? Let's back up even further. What do we know about them? Acts 14. We know that Paul traveled through their hometown. In Acts 14, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. In other words, we don't know exactly how this went down, but here's what we do know. We know that when Paul arrived in the hometown of Lois and Eunice, he was covered with blood. He had been stoned, presumed to be dead, had gotten up and was now traveling. Surely his face was disfigured. Even if he was dressed cleanly and washed up, he was a wreck. And anyone who came in contact with him would think, what happened to you, son? And so here he is preaching, covered with all of whatever a person would look like after they'd been stoned nearly to death. And he's saying, now this God is the God you want to place your faith in. This God is the one you want to follow. This God is the one you need to be strong in the face of persecution. And instead of people going, I'm not following that. You think I'm going there? If you think I'm following a God who would let that happen to me, you're crazy. They say, that's us. Sign us up. We want that. And we're going to raise our our young son, Timothy, in that kind of gospel. Where's that faith? See, that's the mom and dad. That's the, that's the parent I want to be. That's the church I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a place that says, God is better than the American dream. God is better than whatever the TV says is the win. God's plan is a better plan and that we'll put him before ourselves and that we're willing to lay down our lives for the furtherance of the gospel that we'll say, God, you are the God of the universe who has spoken. And here's what you've said. And you've handed us this gospel and we must, we absolutely must. If we don't do anything else in this life, we're not going to stand before God and say, Hey, how are your children? Hey, how did you do on your ACT? Hey, how how did you do at your job performance evaluation? Hey, how's your 401k? Hey, how's... none of those questions are going to come up. One question will be asked. Did you make disciples? That's it. That's it. That is the preeminent call to make disciples. And so Jesus comes on the scene. And he says things like Matthew nineteen twenty nine. And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers or wives or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, Eunice received a hundredfold. She gave her son for the gospel. Because her hope was in the Lord. Where is our hope? What are we hoping in this morning? Well, to close, if you're sitting there and the voice in your head is saying, there's no hope for me. My kids are grown and they've run away and they've gone into a foreign land. And my heart is broken and I can't take it back. And I feel the weight of all the past failures bearing down upon me. And this morning, all I want to do is get out of here. I say to you, take your eyes to the very last passage of Psalm 78. The end of the story says that God declares 
that He will shepherd them. Them who have been hard-hearted and rebellious. Them who have been uh, uh, void of courage. Them who have turned their back on Him in spite of all He's done. He says, I will shepherd them according to the integrity of my heart and guide them by the skillfulness of my hands. Did you know what He does? He sends a shepherd in, in King David, a precursor to the great shepherd, King Jesus. That our God responds to you this morning, no matter where you are this morning. Listen to me, please. He says, look, it's okay. It's not about yesterday. It's about today. It's about right now. Is God moving in your life right now? Is your hope in Him right now? Because if it's not, He's inviting you to come and let Him shepherd you. He wants to shepherd you by the integrity of His heart. He wants to walk with you. He wants to guide you. He wants to lead you. He's, he says that He will restore even that which the locusts have eaten away. Joel chapter 2. That He'll take the years, He'll take the pain, He'll take the tears, He'll take the agony, and He'll restore that. He'll rebuild that. He'll replenish that. He'll, he'll put in your life an opportunity to, to minister to the next generation. He'll, he'll restore the bond between your wayward children. He'll help you. He'll walk with you. He'll guide with you. But if you stay, if you stay in a place where your hope is in anything other than Him, then you will walk in discouragement, in suffering, in just tribulation fraught with condemnation, that your struggles will just multiply upon you. God has given us a simple command. It's a simple command. And my prayer is that you would rise up and say, Lord, today, my hope, I want my hope to be in you, in you. My hope is in you. What's God doing in your life today? today right now let's stand bow our heads close our eyes just for a moment as we have a time of invitation this is a moment for you to respond to what the lord is speaking into your heart you can come forward you can kneel at this altar and pray you can come and i would love to receive you and pray for you and help you there's pastor rod is here pastor brian will be here we'd love to counsel with you help you pray for you if you want to come and plant your life in this church say god's moving us here you come You come as I pray. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for the encouragement of Your Word and Your truth. Thank You, Lord God, that You're a God who's who's so worthy of praise and glory. Lord, may we as a people place our hope in You. Thank You, Father, that no matter what may come against us, Lord God, You're greater. Knowing You is the most amazing experience of our lives. And we are so thankful today. So, Lord, will you bless every life in this room, I pray. And now, God, call us unto yourself. Some to return to you, some for the first time to you, Lord. But call us. We want to come and be shepherded by you. Thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar's open. You respond to the Lord as he leads.